Hello everyone yeah. and welcome to the Demographic Cast. My name is Jack Street and I'm joined today by Dr. Simon Roybottom. Simon, thank you so much for, for joining me. You're welcome, it's a pleasure. No Brett this week, but he'll be back next week. Um, so I've got the pleasure of, of speaking to you all to myself. Um, and I, <laughs> I, I wanted to, to um, you know, sort of start us off by kind of assessing the, the situation that we're in, you know, looking at, mm. at the run out of lockdown, um, starting yeah. to go back to, to normal whatever normal yeah. may mean and maybe we can we can unpick that a little bit um yeah what yeah. are kind of your thoughts about the way that the um the lockdown's been eased the stages that we've had do you think it's kind of been done in a, in a sensible fashion or do you think that perhaps there's been some, some aspects that we've overlooked no i i think it i think it has i mean i think it's been i, I think it's been very fortuitous that actually things have gone the way that uh, the, the scientific evidence is backed up because I think once those dates were put in people's minds, I think those dates were fixed and they're very, very important. You know, I think that those are the things, it's almost like a stage thing that gets us through. Um, so so I'm very, very pleased that the kind of scientific evidence showed that, that, that uh, we're getting on top of COVID enough so that they can, those um, relaxations of the rules can be stood by. Because I do think it's kind of, it just feels like people are very much the third the third lockdown the one just after christmas i think was very tough on people you know i think it was the the, the winter timing the length of it the fact that we'd already been through nine months of it i think was punishing for people so i think it's very very important that things are going to open up next week just as the weather's getting better and i think it's yeah it, it's it's it, the timing is very good yeah, I agree. I, I think I'm glad that you raised the, the kind of Christmas period as well, because for me, the, the mm. particularly the first couple of months of this year were really tough. I really yeah. found it difficult after Christmas, you know, looking forward to seeing family. And then a lot of those yeah. easings were kind of, the government went back on those, didn't they? And, and said that we, yeah. we couldn't, and that was difficult. And then the yeah. full-on lockdown, the, the bad weather. It was the first time in my life that I think that the, the early sort of nights and the weather who actually impacted on my my mental well-being yeah. um yeah uh, you know and i it must be i know it's a, a regular thing and i've been lucky enough not to kind mm -hmm. of suffer with with that in in the past but yeah. it's really difficult yeah. i find it really difficult i think it is i mean it's, for me seasonally affective disorder you know it's one of those things that um that, that that a lot of people sort of say they have but i actually think you know like most mental health issues they're on a spectrum and I think most of us suffer from some kind of seasonally affective disorder because you know the sun is the source of life it's the source of all our energy it's the source of everything so you know so when we're cut off from that I think we struggle you know I do think we struggle and the things that we can normally do to, to kind of offset that struggle um, we weren't able to do so it was just you know I think that's been a huge part of, of, of the lockdowns and of the pandemic is that what's happened is is that the, the things that we normally do to offset the everyday stresses of life um we've not been able to do and i think that's been a big um that's been a big problem do you think there's been enough emphasis on both awareness raising of, of those issues and ways in which people can tackle them because i know that this has maybe perhaps been an area where we have focused on more over recent years but i don't know whether mm. i've necessarily seen that much discussion or um that, that many suggested solutions for people that are really suffering with these these problems maybe for the first time like myself or, or people that have mm. repeatedly and maybe they've been exacerbated in in the past couple of months the, the, do, you, do you mean do you mean the, the, the you mean mental health issues in general or a seasonally effective thing either or really 
Okay. The, I mean, one of the things that I think there has been, um, there's definitely been a lot of focus on the effect of lockdown on mental health. So what it means to be isolated, what it means to um, not have contact with family and friends, what it means to be shut indoors, these, these kind of things. But I think what has been missed is the general level of importance of the things that we do for leisure, the things that we do for pleasure. And I think that was a really unfortunate thing that it was, um, I, I think maybe enough thought wasn't given to that. You know, I understand that there has to be a lockdown, but it was kind of a case of you, you, we have to continue to work. Children have to continue to be educated. All those things that actually cause stress were still there. You know, and worse, people had money worries, people had job worries, job security worries, uncertainties. But the things that make life worth living, the things that offset that stress, you know, they were taken away. And I think that was, you know, what I would like to see the conversation going forward is how important those things are. So, you know, I think that a lot of the things that we've taken for granted, you know, the, the kind of socializing, the, the kind of the arts, the um, all those kind of uh, music, all those things that actually really offset stresses, take our mind off things, those kind of things. Um, I think there's got to be a kind of an increased emphasis mm. on those rather than just seeing them as a, a luxury, you know, as a kind of necessity, yeah. a necessity that we need to have in our lives. One of the things that, that we've been speaking about a lot recently, either on the show, but also kind of like internally, just having discussions about the world going back you know opening up a bit and, and us being able to socialize is um mm. how we've personally all been feeling about mm. socialization and going and doing those things again a lot of us really excited mm. brett was saying that he got this kind of buzz from going and being around mm. people at the polling station you know it was yeah. like, even something yeah. as simple as that got him excited to go yeah. and go and you know be out in the world again but then yeah. we one of our regular contributors vicky gill wrote a really powerful mm. um and personal piece on her reservations about the world opening up again mm. um mm. do you think I, I i don't know i, I don't i don't think that, that particularly people who felt like that and i was really happy that vicky felt mm. comfortable enough to write that article because i think probably a lot of people are feeling that way i'm really yeah. you know excited and have been really excited to you know get back out again but there are probably a lot of people who feel incredibly pressured to get back out into mm. the world and pick all of those things up again but maybe don't mm. aren't, aren't particularly excited or have quite large anxieties about about doing those things again yeah well i mean i think i think that's right and i think one of the one of the problems i guess with um with kind of approaching these things is is generalizing a lot of the time and, mm. and part of the problem is is that i think these things are very individualistic um you know in terms of kind of in terms of kind of the anxieties about uh, going into places where there's other people and those kind of things. I think a lot of it depends on our on our individual state of whether we're kind of introverted or extroverted. You know, there's a lot of evidence that kind of shows that that is a sort of a pivotal dynamic of kind of personality between introversion and extroversion. So there are going to be those that that are on the scale, you know, of, of kind of introversion who who actually found lockdown quite nice. You know, those people who actually it was a relief not to have to do the socialising that they were perhaps intended to do um or, or perhaps kind of felt they should do and maybe they're they're the ones that then feel very uncomfortable at the moment about having to go back out i think i might have lost you here jack oh can you hear me hello oh yeah no i've got yeah, you yeah i've got you sorry i can hear you frozen a bit that's all 
Um, sorry. So and and you know so and and those extra you know those people who are perhaps more extrovert in temperament, they're the ones that are looking forward to going out, and they're the ones that have found it very very difficult not to connect to people. Yeah. So I think you know when we talk about these things, we have to kind of. Uh, I think we have to kind of signal to people that their individuality is okay. You know, whatever they, you know, it's not a, it's not a case of should, it's not a case of, you, you know, saying about Vicky, it's not a case that you should be excited about meeting people, you know, it's, and it's also not the case that you should find it difficult, but it's about being okay with however you feel about it, you know, for some people. And, and I guess, you know, for myself, I'm a bit of a kind of ambivert. So I kind of, you know, some days I'm looking forward to it. Some days it's great. And other days I'm kind of like, oh, do you know what? I've actually quite enjoyed a bit of peace and quiet. So, you know, I think it's, um, I, I think we have to take an individualistic approach and just say to people, you know, however you feel about yeah. it is, is okay. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's particularly an issue for young people as well in that there's a lot of sort of social, external social pressure to uh, kind of go out and experience the world, especially when things we haven't been able to, you know, go to clubs and stuff. And it's like, I, I don't think I'd be particularly comfortable going to a nightclub unless I'd had the vaccine, which I haven't. Um, you know, I, I don't think I'd be particularly comfortable with that. And I'm sort of happy to say that, but I think there'd be a lot of people that wouldn't be. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's, that's a worry, I think for the longevity of people's, you know, mental health and mental well-being, if, if they're going to make mm. those um, anxieties worse by kind of forcing them to go mm. themselves to go and do stuff. Um, but then, you know, I, I don't know how to, to counter that, I guess, like you say, is to make those people understand that it's okay to feel that way and to try and be comfortable, mm. um, yeah. you know, in that. But also, should we be encouraging people to kind of face those those fears and anxieties? What do you think of that kind of school of thought that says, that's, you know, attack that's your... That's a very... Uh... Yeah, that's a very, very good point. That's a very good point. And this is one that I come up against a lot in, in therapy. This idea of face your fears, mm. I think it's a, I think it's a good one. But one of the most important thing with people when they're struggling with mental health is timing. And that, that's what I mean about, I mean, this is my problem with a lot of kind of, I guess, pop psychology or a lot of self-help stuff is that it, it generalizes a heck of a lot. So for a lot of people who, you know, struggle with anxiety, that kind of feel the fear and do it anyway thing can be good. But if you are actually really struggling with anxiety, if you're in a place where actually your body has a, is carrying a lot of anxiety, sometimes doing that makes it worse. And I think that's what's very difficult. That's what's very difficult to know is that there isn't a sort of blanket advice. Uh, you have to have a kind of certain, I mean, this is where I think therapy is helpful because it kind of hopefully helps uh, helps you understand that's what i would want to do with a client before kind of saying you know right go out and face your fears if you fear this it's about working out where are you at the moment you know are you starting to be burned out are you recovering are you you know what's going on for you at the moment has this been going on for quite a long time do we need to start small so i think you know any sort of blanket blanket advice is problematic because the, the way that I sort of always approach these things is absolutely individualistically, mm. you know, about that person and what's helpful for them. You know, in these discussions, there is, you know, there is a thing about that says, um, you know, that says that uh, going back to the introversion, extroversion, there's something that says that extroversion is the model of how we should be. And actually, that's not true. You know, introverts bring a lot to the table. And so it's about, I think, in those situations about recognizing, you know, do you do you get enough socializing? If you only need a little bit, great, perhaps that's all you need. And do you need to force yourself through this thing that you may not enjoy, that may make you worse? 
it may be something that's good. You might you might get over the fear and you might feel this is brilliant. I'm really glad I've pushed through this. But I think it has to be approached individualistically. Yeah, I think the way that I, I view it, and I don't, maybe this is this is again maybe a bit simplistic, but when people discuss dieting and, and people say, mm-hmm. you know, this is the diet for you, this is going to change your life, it's going to change everybody's life, everyone should, you know, diet in this way. Yeah. And the, like you say, the reality is it's about sort of shopping around a little bit and figuring out what's what's best for you right what works for you absolutely do you think that that kind of self-help um particularly that kind of influencer-led self-help can become a little bit dangerous the the way that those sort of solutions are are sold yeah yeah i do because i think unfortunately what what happens is is that i think people i think it's well-meaning i think it's well meant Mm -hmm. but i think unfortunately what what happens is is that people find a way that works for them and they then extrapolate out to say, well, this is what I did, so therefore everybody can do this. But everybody is different, and everybody's circumstances is very different. Everybody's background and experience is very different, and there are certain things that won't work. Um, you know, what I prefer to do, you know, the way I work with clients is to offer a raft of things, you know, to say, look, let's look at this. This, this might work for you. You might like this. You might hate this. It's really, I do think, it, you know, dieting is a good analogy, really, you know, comparing the kind of physical health and finding for some people, they like to exercise a lot. They enjoy exercise. Other people don't. They like to look after what they eat, you know, those kind of things. I think it's whatever works. Some people, you know, um, work, work out like crazy during the week and then have a two days off at the weekend and binge. You know, other people, it's, it's how we keep our own uh it's how we keep our own health in check and i think that unfortunately to to sort of say this is the way um it, and, and again i think your diet diet industry analogy is a good one you know in terms of kind of um because how much how many diets have there been over the years and actually obesity is just getting worse <laughs> and it's the same with self-help books you know self-help books are, are, are they've been out there there've been solutions there've been all sorts of therapies and you know mental health is just getting worse so it's kind of so these things obviously aren't offering a solution no one's found it um and i think that's because there isn't a solution there isn't a widespread solution there is only an individual's approach to these things yeah how about a sort of the the kind of wellness and uh, spirituality industry in Mm. in terms of you know things like headspace and yeah podcasts that that kind of discuss wellness and, and sort of you know how mm. to access your spiritual side and, and th- those kinds of things do you think they're maybe a little bit more useful in terms of talking about meditation and mm. uh, or do you think that they've got their limitations as well is it do you think that the same sort of thing can happen is that if you meditate you'll be fine you know all that's all you need to do and, i think of, unfortunately right. yes i mean i think these things are these things are really unfortunate because i think you know unf- a, a lot of i think i saw a meme the other day that you know somebody is um you know dying from lack of sleep and and you know the last thing they need is somebody to say have you tried meditating (laughs) you know it's just it's just it's just bollocks to those people you know who are really really struggling with sleep for a for a kind of for a deep reason a physiological reason stresses you know meditation is not going to do a thing um I, i think it is unfortunately it's how it's used you know again an individual approach to meditation is about when you can use it so for somebody who comes to me and is having, you know, right at the bottom of a deep depression, a burnout, I would never suggest to them meditation because right. they are just not in the place to do it. 
um, in a prophylactic sense, meditation is really helpful. In a preventative sense, meditation can help um, separate away from those unhelpful thoughts that can lead to poor mental health. But actually, it's 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 not something that can really help. You know, when somebody's really, really struggling, it's the very, very simple things that need to be done first. You know, getting out of bed is difficult. You know, getting out of bed, getting having a shower in the morning, those kind of things. And so meditation is not, um, it's not a great thing at that particular point. I also kind of feel it gets misused a lot, right. I think, in terms of... Um, in terms of what it's used for, one of the things that I kind of see is that people will always kind of say, oh, I've tried meditation, but but it was a real problem because I couldn't stop my mind. Well, you know, if they say that, I'm kind of thinking, well, who's teaching you this? Because yeah. that's, the, that's the whole point yeah. is that you're learning that you can't stop your mind. That's the thing. And so if you think that meditation is to stop yourself thinking, then, you know, it, it's just really you've not been you've not been shown it well. And so that's, that's one of the problems I think with these apps. Um, I think meditation is one of those things that you need help with, you know, a bit, a bit like, it's a bit like therapy. I mean, at, at the time, at the moment, we haven't quite gone into the computerized app for therapy thing, but it's certainly been, it's certainly been mooted. I think a few apps have kind of have, have bots providing therapy. Yeah. Um, I know there's Which is... yeah, I know there's one that you can access um, therapy via you sort of input what your problems are and they give you something mm. to speak to. I know that that's yeah. kind of like that streamlined service that you can pay for, but I haven't seen right. any that, bot led therapy sounds really dangerous. That sounds scary, yeah. almost sort of like Black Mirror esque. Absolutely, absolutely, and 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 I'm, I definitely read an article that actually, you know, that's this is the sort of thing that actually they're thinking of, you know, of kind of, uh, which I think completely misses the point. Yeah. You know, I, I mean, what what is really really important about therapy for mental health is that you as a person or the client as a person is understood individually. You know, they're not told do this, this will fix you. Do this, this will fix you. It's about being understood as an individual, and that process of being understood is really important yeah. in itself. You know, that 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 connecting with somebody else. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I wanted to come back to um, lockdown and, and the impacts of yeah, our mental yeah. health of, of lockdown. And you said that there'd been sort of some kind of conversations or, or even research into what the impacts of, of lockdown have been on our mental health. Would you kind of be able to elaborate yeah. for, for us what those are and, and the understanding the, or the level of understanding that we have of how lockdown and the kind of isolation that many people have, have faced has impacted our, our yeah. mental health? Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, the, the thing about uh, about isolation and contact really comes from a lot of the the, the, the view I have of psychological is evolutionary psychology, um, and the thing about that is is that what we recognise is is that we are mammals, you know, we're mammals, and therefore we need other mammals to survive. You know, when we are born, we are not. Um, we're not independent like reptiles who can go off and, and immediately start to hunt, look after themselves. We need the support of somebody else. And so it's absolutely intrinsic to our well-being. You know, the, the communication with other people is, is, is uh, the, the relationships with other people is absolutely intrinsic to our well-being. And if we don't see other people, um, you know, we really, really struggle. It's one of the, you know, it's why one of the, the most um, vicious punishments that can be meted out is, is um, complete solitary confinement. 
you know you remove the uh, you remove that from other people. So I, I think in terms of kind of the isolation, the the, the lockdown, the the isolation that some people have suffered is um, it's not. I think hopefully it will uh, it will sort of highlight how how isolated we are becoming as a society, how divided off, how separate we are. Um, and actually, you know, one of the things that actually it would be really helpful, I think this, this whole idea of having a bubble is actually amazing because it fits in with, I think, the way that in an evolutionary sense, we actually should be living, which is in tribes, which is we have a small, um, we have a small uh, kind of group of people that will live together, which is about enough because the other flip side to this, and this goes back to what we were saying about extroversion and introversion as well, and why some people find it more difficult, is that actually, if we are led to meet more people than we should in our tribe, we actually get more anxious. We actually fear that. So it's like meeting people outside our tribe. So that's kind of a long-winded version of kind of saying that, you know, I think the the the, the main things, um, the, the, the problems for mental health have been... Um, have been the isolation, have been the separation from other people, the lack of comfort, the lack of relationship. But I also think there's obviously, a, for, for certain individuals, there's a huge amount of uncertainty, you know, a huge amount of uncertainty about their jobs, mm. about things going forward, about their their children's education. You know, there's just so much to worry about. Um, that's, what's, that's what um, this whole pandemic situation has given people, um, just an extra layer of worry. Yeah, and I, I think, I don't know what you think about this but I one of the things that maybe I've thought a lot over the the pandemic period is that these these problems for many people have are things that have existed and the pandemic hasn't necessarily brought on new problems which of course for some people it it has presented new new challenges but actually just exacerbated things that were already there and and maybe made those those more obvious I think whether it be on a personal level from a a psychological point of view or whether it be on sort of institution wide levels whether you look at the health service or you look at policing or whatever um, there are lots of inadequacies about the way that we're kind of set up at the moment and that the the, the lockdowns the pandemic in general has sort of highlighted those Um, and I don't know whether actually we've really taken that information on board enough to kind of face those challenges I guess I hope so. I mean, I guess uh, I think at the moment we're still in the midst of it. You know, we're still kind of keeping an eye on other variants and kind of hoping. My hope would be that once we're absolutely clear is that is that um, I mean, and this goes into the political is kind of, you know, is it good enough to go along with a threadbare NHS? You know, is it good enough to go along with threadbare social services? And, And what does it mean if that's the level we're operating at? If something like a pandemic comes along, um, we don't have a lot of spare wriggle room, you know, to, to help people out. Um, it's a, uh, it's a, uh, uh, hopefully it, once this is all gone, there will be a reflective space or maybe it won't go, you know, maybe now we've had this, maybe it's a case of this will actually be incorporated into thinking, you know, of kind of what does it mean? How are we going to live our lives? Is there a better way to live our lives? And I think this is, you know, politically, this is going to sort of feed in to a lot of things that we should be thinking about, in, which in terms of climate change, mm. you know, global pandemics, um, technology, all the things that have brought us to a place. Uh, it's 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 how we should be living now. That the question is 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 what's the best way for us to live to provide um, contentment, safety, security, growth. 
yeah no I, I couldn't agree more and i hope that that's what what comes out of it and i was i was um reading uh, an article in preparation for one of the events that we put on last week for our, our world press freedom festival and yeah it was looking at the level of information that people have started to consume around the coronavirus um you know particularly around the bbc that the event was kind of based around uh, the mm. bbc and um people throughout the pandemic had accessed information specifically to look at coronavirus news statistics from around the world at at such a vast level that i i kind of was struck by what that must do to us in the way that we we see the world you know constantly taking on information about death constantly taking on information about hospitalization and suffering not just here but but globally Uh and what that does to us um i mean what what does what what does that do to us i mean it can't be good I absolutely agree. I mean, I think I think that this is that's a hugely important point. Um, I, I think we're reaching the point where actually we need to make the conscious decision to turn this stuff off, because I, I think that I think you're absolutely right. What what we get is we get a sense of anxiety, a constant sense of anxiety, which we're very prone to anyway, and we get a constant sense of anxiety about safety and how safe the world is. And you're absolutely right. That, you know, if, if soon as one um, incident happens on the other side of the world, it's there in our living room or it's there in our phone, flashing in our face. And actually, for most people, the majority of the Western world, our lives are perfectly safe. You know, if you actually look at the statistics, if you actually talk to people about, you know, how's your life been? Have you been in any imminent threat, any imminent danger? Most people is no, no, you know, my life is okay. Of course, there are you know, when we look at a normal curve, there are outliers and there are things that happen to people, but they are very, very rare. But instead, I think we grow up with a huge sense of fear. And and this always has been the case. You know, there's always been this strange um, kind of paradox that as the world gets safer, we believe it's less safe. Mm-hmm. And it's purely due to the media, you know, and unfortunately, the media has learned how to tune into our, uh, I guess, our, our worst fears. You know, we we are we want to stay on high alert. We don't want to risk not looking out for danger. That's not in us as an organism. And so by looking for the headlines, we're basically looking over the horizon to see where the danger is coming from. And even though that's something that we that that is that is in us as an organism to cope safe, um, unfortunately the media uses it to keep us locked on, to keep us well, basically gaining advertising money is yeah. what it's all about. You know, so. Um, yeah, so I think unfortunately we've had, we have reached a point now where we can get news instantly. You know, things are live streamed as they're happening from any corner of the world. But but I guess we have to start to question: Is this the right thing for us as humans? Do we just need to start to make the decision to turn this off now? Yeah. I think, you know, for me, for me, one of the things that's most important about mental health going forward is education. Is education to everybody to every everybody to understand what um what events what um, information what experiences what they do to us as um as humans as as mammals as organisms what that does to us and how we can choose to avoid it or ameliorate it that's that's the key thing for me so education about what it what mental health means is very very important yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I'll, I'll come to, to to education a little bit more in a second, but I just wanted to, you know, I was watching a, a documentary, I started watching a documentary on, on Netflix about the son of yeah. Sam Killer, or Killers in, in the US. Oh, right, yeah. Really yeah. good. Um, it started off really yeah. well anyway. But one of the things that they were addressing was that at the time in, in New York, the New York Post had just started really, yeah. you know, 
to get papers flying off the shelves and one of the things that the Murdoch or that Murdoch figured out unfortunately yeah. for, for kind of the rest of us was that those kinds of headlines sell you know fear sells yeah. and to, yeah, to get those newspapers to fly off the shelves you, you sort of tweak a story a little bit or you make some bits up or you write a headline that isn't particularly true but it looks good mm-hmm. you're going to sell yeah. more papers and that like you say is transferred into into digital form now where we're getting those those like you say those notifications ding up, ding up mm. on our phones and alert us yeah. when something bad is going on you know so we're yeah. like you say we're, we're there on high alert we're, we've got a, a sort of dinging going off constantly absolutely um, when when something bad happens and one of the things that i've done recently um is turn off notifications from my phone mm. you know the yeah. only notifications i get are um uh, like phone calls that's that's it that's all i have yeah. on yeah. um yeah. and you know i'm on my phone a, a lot it hasn't necessarily stopped me from using my phone mm-hmm. but what it has done is stopped it's it's changed the way in which i i use my phone so i'll go on and i'll check my messages or check my emails mm-hmm. or, or I'll, I'll check my you know i'll check twitter but i'm not constantly staring at it you know or i'm not yeah, constantly yeah. aware that something might go off any second um, absolutely yeah yeah uh, no i think that that's a you know a, a small positive change that you can make like you like you say that it actually helps a lot you know and it, it I think it does. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, these, these are the things that actually, you know, when we are, when we are, when these notifications come up on our phone, our body reacts in the only way it can, which is that you are sensing danger. And the only way that our body can react is to, is to trigger the fight or flight response because we are still essentially cavemen. You know, we have the makeup of, of kind of, um, of 250,000 years ago. So the only thing I do is our body goes into a fight or flight response and then we find ourselves being constantly activated, you know, which is why a lot of people struggle with anxiety, because we are we are constantly anxious. We are constantly thinking, where's the danger coming from? Where's the danger? We don't feel safe and contented enough. Um, you know, even though we're in sitting in our living room and we're perfectly safe and we've got a nice house around us and we've got hot running water, we've got food, we've got everything. The phone comes in and says, somebody's running amok with a gun in America. And yeah. suddenly you think, oh my God, and you feel, you know, because of our empathy, we, we feel that, we feel the pain of it. We feel the fear of it. Um, and it's, and it's, um, it's not imagined. It's real for us at that particular point. So we're kind of, um, we're kind of um, vicariously feeling it. Do you think that we've seen though the impacts of those, you know, because this is all incredibly new, right? So do you, do you think mm, that we've, absolutely we've seen what what will be the impacts of of these things? Yeah, or do you think that they're kind of unforeseen? What this is going to do to us as we grow up, particularly my generation who have only ever yeah. known this way. Um, do you think we really yeah. know the, the the impacts that's going to have on on people as they sort of grow older? The problem is, is that it's the the, the data is very difficult to get because. It's one of those sort of circular arguments where you don't know whether anxiety is increasing or whether you're just actually asking about anxiety more. You know, it's one of those things. I I think anxiety, I mean, for me, anxiety, depression, these things, they are part of being human and they've always been there. Um, They are part of, uh, we, we don't want people to feel them and we want to reduce them as much as possible. But my guess is that they've always kind of been there. So it's one of those things that's actually difficult when you go looking for it you may find it, you know, in the past rates were much, much lower, but that was because people weren't coming forward and saying, I struggle with this. You know, we had the whole, we have a whole cultural thing um, that that would say, you know, stiff upper lip. You don't, you don't say you feel afraid. You don't say you feel anxiety. You just get on with it. So, so the data is actually difficult to come by. Um, So 
comparing dates would be difficult, but my guess is that we probably are, are already seeing it um, for a number of reasons as well. I mean, I think the pressure, not, not just the, this kind of thing, but I think the pressure that seems to be on children, uh, I think this is a this is probably in terms of education, this is probably a, a, a sort of function of of league tables and this way it's done it is that the pressure to succeed, the pressure for exams is unrelenting. I mean, it's absolutely unrelenting, really. They're starting younger and younger. And from the age of five until the age of 21, you know, children are being appraised. They're worried about constantly their exams, where they come, whether it's, you know, their SATs, their 11 plus, their GCSEs, their A-levels, then the degree, and then they have to start living and go out to work. And I just think sometimes it's all too much. You know, the expectation has just built and built and built and built. And I do think it is a kind of watershed time to kind of stop, take a look back and think, what are we doing? You know, is this for, what for? You know, what are these people working for? What are you driving towards? You know, the the the, the capitalistic myth of kind of, um, you know, you get your big house, you get your car and then you're happy. Everybody's learning that it's bullshit. You know that that actually you, you you get to that stage, and that does not guarantee happiness. That does not guarantee contentedness. So we need to sort of, I mean, you know, to my view, that needs to be completely rethought. Yeah, which is a big, it is, right? It's, yeah, it's, it's, big, it's, big ass. Which is probably which is probably why so many people are avoiding having the conversations. We we spoke about this again last week when we we're talking about political mm. education and media literacy, the importance mm. of this stuff. It's like it kind of. You know, you sit down and discuss it, and it boggles my mind that we're not teaching young people how to navigate, how yeah. to properly navigate in the world. But absolutely, the repercussions of educating young people about this is that maybe people more and more, which they are already, will sit up and go, "Hang on a minute, this is this is all shit. We need to yeah. change it as as soon yeah. as we possibly can." And that yeah. then, you know, first of all, it's going to hit a lot of of companies' profit margins, like like we said, but also it's going to take huge societal change and there are many people that that a society suits in the way that is formulated at the moment but b yeah. probably don't want to partake in that massive yeah. massive change so do you think that's why we're not educating young people on these these issues or are there other reasons i honestly don't know i mean i think that's a very very good question because i'm i'm exactly the same as you it's it sort of it really puzzles me that actually so much is um prioritized over basic as you say understanding self-understanding emotional understanding uh, relational understanding self-worth our place in the world uh, values all those kind of things i think they are coming in i mean i think they are i, I do hear about it but, but i whether people but at the same time there is still this enormous pressure on um on qualifications on achievements those kind of things so honestly i, I asked answers i don't know i don't know why this isn't actually a, a sort of um not a taught part of the curriculum um maybe maybe um government with the national curriculum is not seen as it's part of its remit maybe it sees that as parental um as, as a parental remit but i think the problem is is that <laughs> those parents have never been taught it either so how are they supposed to pass it on to their children you know it's got to, the education's got to start somewhere yeah. Um, and, and it's got to start by, it's got to be given by educated people. You know, I could never hope to teach my kids GCSE math, you know, I would hopeless, you know, I want, I want to give it to somebody who, who knows about that stuff. You yeah. Know? So, um, yeah, so I don't think parents can be, um, given that 
responsibility oh. left left on their shoulders. Yeah. Surely that's the point of the education system, isn't it? It's to well, have I would think people so. who are qualified teaching yeah. people yeah. qualifications. Um, you know, yeah. I, I would have thought that that and fundamentally the things that you need to to learn to function in society which again mm. more, more things under this bracket is like sort of taxes mortgages mm -hmm. uh, you know yeah. how to do your accounts that sort of stuff we still don't teach that, those things you need to know those things in order to live properly yeah. why aren't we teaching yeah. them um absolutely yeah yeah you know i i, I don't i don't understand it and, and when no, we, we look no. at social media and social media's influence to young people yeah they are in, they are impacted these things are impacting young people in such profound ways you know completely mm. altering their perceptions of themselves particularly the, the something that really worries me and, and that i've a trap that i think i've fallen into a lot is the comparison to oh people. god yeah you know comparing myself to somebody who's like 32 years old who's running their own business as somebody who's, yeah. who's you know in the process or, or is you know trying to run a business who's really yeah. really successful and i'm 22 looking at that person mm. going why am i not like that it's just yeah. completely unrealistic completely ridiculous thing to do but it's yeah. part of using those you know uh those those sites is that this person is somebody who is putting on a face it's a it's a uh -huh. mask you know it's not yeah. truly what their life is like yet we're sat, sat here or, or i'm sat here in my room comparing myself yeah. to that person it's really dangerous yeah. and we're not teaching first of all young people the why that's not a good idea to, to do yeah. but also what the impacts of, of that is you know why we shouldn't do it that it just, you know, it, it really seems... Absolutely. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. I mean, comparison is one of those things that's it's completely useless. It's it's neither good for the sender or, nor the receiver. Mm. You know, it's, it's kind of, as you say, when it, it's one of those things that if we get, uh, if we get sort of, um, you know, if we compare ourselves to somebody we're found wanting, we're left feeling bad. But also the person who's putting their image up on Instagram with all the filters and stuff and feeling, oh, look at me, this is good. And, and that's that's a total self, false self you know they're not getting a, a, a proper sense of themselves they're feeling what's superior to other people mm. they're feeling that they're getting their sense of self-worth by having a comparison to other people and and that's really dangerous i mean that that is that will crack at some point mm. um you know i i think there is this there's, there is this strange thing going on that i read about sometimes about how people will you know, people will put themselves out there on Instagram or these kind of things and are then very surprised when people are cruel and mean. And it's kind of like, but that's what people are like, you know, and actually if you kind of, if you kind of, and I know it's one of these things that people say they shouldn't be given free reign, but actually, you know, if you went to a park and stood on the corner sort of saying, hey, everybody look at me, someone's bound to call me a dickhead. <laughs> You know, now I can't, I can't get upset then about that person calling me a dickhead. I've got to expect that because that's people, you know, we can't police everybody's behavior. But I think that's what, that's the worry is that I think people put out the Instagram things to get a sense of their self-worth from it. And that's what worries me because they're not going to get it. Not from, not from anonymous people, not from a crowd. You know, essentially you're dealing with a crowd in a pub, you know, you can, I mean, I, it's like, I used to I used to be a musician. It's kind of I never got on stage expecting everybody to cheer and clap. You know, when somebody would shout, you know, your shit, you just have to deal with it. You know, it's kind of um, so. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of I know how upsetting these things can be, but actually, I think the whole system 
of putting yourself out there is problematic. I really do. That's yeah. the thing when you when you say it like that, it's so obvious, right? When you say, you know, if you were to stand in a pub and go, "I want everybody to tell me what they think of me," you're going to get a lot of those people saying, you know, you're an idiot or worse. <laughs> So we shouldn't be surprised when we put that stuff on social media and people do that because social media doesn't make people bad. It's just highlighting what those people are really like. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. We're not told that, right? We're not, we said everybody, we we all have to be nice and everyone's going to be kind to each other. We're going to be really supportive. And when that's not the case, we're surprised. Well, and the thing about it is, is that, you know, if we were to really dig down into those people who are saying you look like a dickhead or whatever, the reason they're saying that is probably because they feel bad about themselves. So to say you look like a dickhead or you look like, you know, fat and ugly, whatever, they're making themselves, they're they're putting themselves in a hierarchical way above you. They're kind of like, right, I put them down. So they're feeling better about themselves. Everybody's struggling to feel better about themselves in their own way. So we can't really, you know, and, and the one to say yes okay that's not a particularly great way but not everybody has the self-awareness to understand that or to understand or have the empathy to understand what it does to everybody else when you say these things so you know i think we have to kind of encompass like you say encompass the understanding and maybe feel that something about the internet the instagram is structurally unsound as you say it's the equivalent of standing up in front of a crowd of people and saying what do you think of me and say that actually structurally in that there's no there's no right answers you know there's no yeah do you think that social media companies themselves have any kind of responsibility to to alter their platforms to combat against this stuff because this is something that i i struggle with because on the the one hand i think on the one hand i think that as if you're trying to create a product that is as good as it possibly can be you want to try your best to mitigate against those issues a Mm -hmm. i don't really know if they can be mitigated against i think they're just a byproduct of the these platforms Mm -hmm. and a lot of these platforms are now being used in ways that they weren't intended to be used so twitter for example was supposed to be a networking site like linkedin now Mm -hmm. it isn't it's just toilet walls and people just write their thoughts on there and Mm -hmm. throw them off into the world so i don't know if those sites can be altered in a way that's really productive um but also, is it even, is the onus on them, do you think, to, to kind of change the change these platforms in order for them to be productive? Or do we just need to, like you say, educate people to show them that this is the reality of these platforms, you need to be careful and use them in the right way? Um, that's a very good question. Uh, I, I really don't know. I, I, I fall down on both sides, really. Mm. I, on one hand, I kind of think, you know, if you're a company that's making money out of these things, I think you do need to be held responsible for your product. And, um, you know, I suppose you could look at it as, uh, I suppose the issue is is whether you could, the thing that goes to my mind about this stuff, the comparison I always come up with is cigarette smoking. You know, that the, the, the defense for cigarette companies, tobacco companies was always, we, we didn't know this was bad for people, you know, they, and actually, you know, a lot of evidence then came out that said that they mm. did know. Now, the same with this stuff. I don't know whether the evidence is quite in yet about whether this stuff is damaging, whether these platforms are damaging. Now, if it, it does come back and the evidence is that it's damaging and they still don't do stuff, then yes, I think they're culpable and should be made culpable. The problem is, is that I don't know whether they can take the view that, well, we don't have any evidence. We do our best to protect these, um, protect users. So I, I honestly don't know. I, I think coming down on a, on a safe side, I think better education is absolutely mm. key. 
you know, because then it then it becomes a choice. Because you're yeah. absolutely right. I think one of the problems is that you know, um, you know, your generation, any generations coming up, um, doesn't have a separate understanding of what this is. It's just it's just what you do. It's just life. It's just it's there. I guess in the same way that for my generation and the generation above, you know, um, television was just something that was there. You never questioned it. These technologies. Um, they get accepted, but but for for my generation, I can still look at Twitter, Instagram askance because I've seen it be created. I know a time before mm. it was wasn't there, but for other people, they don't have that, and so they just kind of you know they're swimming in the water without really knowing the water's poison, you know. And that's I think that's what we have to educate people to kind of say, look, this is a choice to use this stuff. You don't have to. Uh, we have to educate people about about what is out there you know to to to, like you say media education to for people to to say to people why am i being shown this why is this company choosing to allow this why is this company choosing to show me this why is this news outlet choosing to tell me this you know there are as you say about murdoch headlines these Mm. kind of things there are innumerable things happening in the world new events why am i being told this why have they chosen this as the thing to put on the front of their newspaper. And I think that kind of education for me is really important and should be in schools. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, if we're thinking about the health and well-being, uh, future of our future of, of, of young people and everybody going forward, this kind of stuff we need to understand. Yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree more. The, the only area that I worry about is that we're creating a world in which people are forced to go down the route of, of being a part of these platforms. I, I stopped using... Um, social media in in university for sort of like my second year in in uni um because i was it was probably the period of my life that i've struggled most with my mental health and my kind of way of dealing with that was to go right i'm just gonna you know tell it all to Mm. to piss off and completely detract myself and reset and it was really positive for me and then came back to those sites and felt like i could use them and interact with them in a more positive way without you know being on twitter yeah. at half past 11 and having an argument with somebody called yeah. you know dave three zero eight and getting really angry about it and then not sleeping properly you know i could yeah. use them a bit more yeah. of a healthy way the, the the only problem with that is that i you know coming back to that and not sticking to that decision because of looking at twitter and going well if i want to be involved in politics i kind of need to have a bit of a personal profile and if i yeah, want to get a job yeah. i need to have a linkedin page and loads of my family yeah. are on facebook and i need to interact with my family and instagram well i need to show the world what i'm doing like you know in yeah. reality do i yeah. really but you, you're pressured in a lot of uh, in a lot of ways to kind of having those profiles workplaces want you to have a linkedin because they want you to be mm-hmm. able to network there so it's getting more and more difficult for people to be maybe flourish in in kind of yeah. the, the in society and detach yeah. themselves from from those profiles and with forcing people to make that decision. I, I, I completely agree it is you know it is impossible to exist without being on the internet in some form or other you know you can't you know medicine all these things that you access education job interviews everything you know it's impossible to remove banks banking it's impossible mm. to remove yourself from this now um which is where i think the only thing is education is yeah. key because it's yeah. that kind of thing of, of knowing of knowing that actually the algorithms that are there are there to keep you surfing are there to show you things that you're interested in to tease you to click on that next thing to 
click on because so you can be advertised to. And I think that if you can understand that and you can make that decision to say, yes, okay, I know what this next thing is going to be, but you know what? It'll wait till morning. My sleep is far more important and I need that, you know, the education about that the, our minds, um, our bodies are not made to have screens in front of us the whole time. You know, our, our whole organism is about darkness descending and was having no other way. You know, the most we would ever have is a campfire. Suddenly, the last 250 years, we've got electric light and we've got that, that sends, you know, that sends signals directly to the brain that says it's not time for sleep because there is still bright light around. And so, you know, just understanding those kind of things, that if we want to improve better sleep, we have to kind of work at it. We can't have phones, you know, phones what 10 15 years that yeah. we've been having smartphones that this bright light in our faces that so many people are sit there you know we've got to adapt to that we've got to understand what that does to us as as organisms and um and, and to then make a choice of kind of saying uh, pretty much similar to smoking you know it's one of those things where as long as we have the education about look this is you can smoke it's fine it's up to you but it's really not a good idea yeah. and it's more than likely going to give you lung cancer yeah. um so it's that kind of approach that I'd like to see sort of taken to this stuff, which is kind of, look, it's fine, it's your choice, but you should know this is the ill effects of it. Yeah, no, I... I uh, sorry, go ahead. That I was going to say that I think the issue is is that we don't have the overwhelming evidence yet. Yeah. Um, I'm sure it will come. Yeah, no, and I, you know, hopefully it does come and it, it comes mm. soon and we can sort of adapt accordingly. But yeah, you know, yeah. education, we always come back to education. I think that's the best way to, for us to move forward. Yeah, yeah. Completely. So I wanted to, I know we're, we're, I'm just conscious, conscious of time. I know we've only got about 10 no minutes worries. left. Um, no worries. But I wanted to kind of just cover the, the uh, local elections. Um, mm. We always kind of look at, at current events or a couple of current events topics. Um, yeah. A pretty dramatic few days, particularly for, for the Labour Party and for the Conservative Party, mm. you know, fantastic gains for the for the Conservative Party. Um, yeah. Plus 293 net gain in councillors, minus 267 loss for Labour councillors. Mm. Um the uh, SNP were one off of a, a majority um, in, yeah. in the Scottish Parliament and Labour uh, one off a majority in the Welsh Senate. Um, mm. I mean, what were some of maybe some of your kind of takeaways from these these local elections? Anything that, that stood out to you in, in particular? Um, I guess I mean, I, I guess one of the things just just listening to some of the media surrounding it is just, a, I guess, a kind of a wider understanding of what's kind of happened that seems to make sense to me. And one of them is that there is, I'm fairly sure there is a kind of COVID bounce. You know, I'm fairly sure that the, the COVID bounce is probably right. That actually, I think when we look and we think about where we are um, and how the vaccination program has been run, I think everybody agrees that it's been run very well. And that it's 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 been a huge success, and I think everybody's experience has been pretty much a good one. And I think the fact that everything has, like I was saying right at the start, about everything has stayed on target yeah. from what was set out planned. I think there's a trust thing there. I right. think there's a gen the general sense for people that they kind of think, you know, even though you know Boris's general personality is, is that of a buffoon, I think people kind of think, well, look at the state of everybody out there everybody else is in so maybe we're not so bad so i think there's a kind of you know i think people vote for safety generally people don't tend to take risks 
Um, so I think there's possibly something there. I think there's also the thing that I think that Labour is really in an identity crisis at the moment. I think it, it, it really is. Um, I don't know what the solution is. You know, for me, it's all it's all been about the removal of Clause 4, uh, you know, back in whenever it was, 94, 95. You know, since then, this is the repercussions we're seeing because Labour basically, you know, they basically said, look, we'll remove Clause 4. We're in... We're Tories in another guise. We'd had, what, 16 years of Tory rule at that point. People were getting tired of it. It was scandal upon scandal. So New Labour was kind of like, people didn't see them as socialist. You know, that was the big, big difference. They were kind of, you know, they tuned into the music scene. It was kind of, we're celebratory, we celebrate success. So it was that kind of thing. I think inevitably there was then a kind of backlash against that from the far left to kind of say, look, we need to reassert what Labour is about. Um, people obviously didn't want that. You know, I think the vote against Corbyn was people definitely saying, we do not like socialism. You know, I think that was, and which is a real shame for me. Um, but then I think what we're existing in and what Keir Starmer's trying to do is exist in this vacuum. You know, where what, what are Labour about? You know, they've removed Clause 4. They don't have that kind of socialist bent to go on. So what, what are they actually offering? What's the alternative? And I don't think anybody really understands that. I think that um, in, in, in the dearth of that, in the dearth of strong policies, um, I think what happens is it becomes a, it becomes a personality competition. Um, and I think, unfortunately, you know, Boris is, Boris is he's, he's, he's in the mould of traditional politicians who, you know, I grew up with Spitting Image and it was always a case of, you know, those who could be easily, easily identified. Didn't matter whether they were good, bad or indifferent, they were easily identified. And Boris is, you know, he's one of these people, he's a, you know, he's a British buffoon and it's kind of like, it's something that people will vote for what they know and, and strangely what they trust. And I think they do. Mm. Even though the man's an inveterate liar, you know, they will still sort of trust. And I think a lot of it is to do with the last three or four months. Uh, well, I also think a lot of it to do with Brexit as well. Right. Of course, that, you know, Boris is seen, I think, by a vast proportion of people as the one who kind of forced it through and yeah. you know, the whole get Brexit done thing. Um, but that's just my take on sure. you know, what, what little I've read about it. Yeah, no, there's a couple of things that I'd like to kind of um, unpack from that, actually. Insofar as the, the COVID bouts, does that surprise you considering the way that the pandemic was dealt with and the amount of people that, that died, suffered, weren't able to see loved ones, kind of like how horrific lots of parts of the lockdown and the pandemic were for, for people? Do you think that, does that kind of bounce surprise you now? Or do you think that we're so, our memories are so short term that it, it doesn't really matter what happened? Uh... I think it is about the short term right. thing. I think I think it's sort of riding a wave that actually things are getting better. You know, I think mm. that's, I, I, you know, sort of these sort of midterm kind of elections are always, always notoriously fickle anyway. You can't really sort of judge what's kind of going on. So I think that, I think that, yeah, despite, I mean, I think that I think the pandemic for any government was just a was just a nightmare. You know, I don't think people aren't prepared for these kind of things. Now, obviously, bad decisions were made, but I think that everybody's just sort of working on the fly a lot of the time and trying to make decisions. Um, I guess so. I mean, I, I guess there was. I guess a government. Well, some people might hold the government directly attributable to, you know, to things that went wrong, things that weren't done. Um, 
I'm not sure any government would have been particularly different with it because, you know, it's very easy to sit from the outside and make these mm. decisions. But when you're at the heart of it and you're having to make decisions, I don't know. I don't know what that would be like. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I would be more critical of, of the government and the government's decision making process. The policy for two and a bit months from this government was herd immunity. Um, so there was the, the concerted right. effort to not put in place any kind of restrictions or, or regulation mm. on people's movement because they wanted people to catch the virus. I think that was very yeah. poor. I think that the amount of time it took to lock down the summer opening up was poor. The way that they've handled schools were poor. The vaccine rollout mm. you know, has been amazing and I don't think anybody can, can argue against that. But the only part mm. the government really played in that was the purchasing of vaccines, which obviously is yeah. important. But the actual rollout itself mm. and the smoothness really doesn't have anything to do with the... The government you know that's been rolled out by by the health service and and, and different services so yeah I, I think that that of course we can never know how other governments would have have, have dealt with mm. it. of course incredibly difficult situation that we're like you say really ill-equipped for yeah do you think then there will be any kind of inquiry into the, the coronavirus because the, the on the handling of the coronavirus crisis because the government oh. have said that it's important that that happens but not now consistently for about the last four months and my my fear my worry and i, I hope i'd be saying this if, if there was a labor government as a, as a member of the labor mm. party is that regardless of how well the situation was um dealt with we, mm. it's incredibly important to sit with hindsight and look back at decisions that were made and figure out where we could have done better and I, oh, my, my worry yeah. is that that now won't happen um mm. and i think it's well, that, i think i think I mean, I think that depends on what an inquiry is used for. You know, that's the thing. I mean, the, the, the way you describe it, I think, is the, exactly the right way to kind of say, look, this was how what can we learn from this? What are the what are the actionable things? What are the implications? What can we take forward going forward if we're faced with this situation again? I think the difficulty is, is that it ends up as a bit of a finger pointing exercise, which is where any government is reluctant to do that, especially when they are still in a position where it might affect their ongoing political career. So I think, you know, what will happen is it will be delayed and delayed and delayed until it's kind of, and you know, any inquiry is going to take years to go through. But, uh, but I think it is absolutely important because I think that, you know, unless things fundamentally change in the way globally we live our lives, because this is one of the amazing things that's not being sort of discussed for me is that, you know, is actually the pandemic really is a result of air travel. You know, these things on a biological level, these things, you know, COVID has a has a, a, a lifespan of what, 10 to 14 days. So basically, if it was in China and we didn't have air travel, by the time it got through, by the time it, people moved out or the migrations, they have natural things like mountains that stop you going, you know, if we're moving at our own pace. So these things don't spread globally. The only way they spread globally is by air travel, is by people moving, you know, within a, within hours in another part of the world. So this is going to happen again, yeah, you know. This yeah. unless that changes, it is going to happen again. And so, um, you know, that's that's why an inquiry is important mm. to say, right, you know, what do we do? Where did this? Where were the bad decisions made? Where do we need to be quicker? What was um, what needs to be what needs to be done next time? Yeah, that's a really interesting sort of point and I haven't really considered that um before which is really bizarre because a lot of the conversation's been about borders and you know mm. allowing people in it's just completely gone over my head that, that aspect of, of, of air travel bizarrely and it isn't something that people are, are discussing and I think that any kind of 
recovery needs to be there needs to be international cooperation to kind of deal with mm. and mitigate for this stuff um in the future yeah. because again that's something that's been poor and, and when we're looking at the the vaccine i mean the kind of vaccine wars that have gone on um mm. the inability mm. to share that vaccine and the intellectual property this is something that's being debated yeah. a lot at the moment with kind of developing nations um, yeah. you know and capitalism's impact on on the sharing of, of the vaccine um, means yeah. that we aren't going to deal with it as quickly as we can you know how for so long we looked at india and all went oh this is horrific this is awful that this is happening and had yeah. the ability as nations to help support and, and roll out a vaccine yeah. in that country not even to ship off vaccines that we had but just to help to supply um the the ingredients i suppose that's the, yeah. the word so they could develop it themselves and didn't want to do mm -hmm. that is shocking so any, any well, kind of, yeah yeah, Sorry, any kind of re recovery must be internationally, you know, there needs to be international cooperation mm. to kind of mitigate against this stuff happening again. Exactly. And this is what we're seeing, you know, in terms of politically, you know, globalization over the last 30, 40 years, you know, it's all been about how we can maximize profits. It's all been opened up to global markets and, uh, you know, lower wages and this kind of thing. But now what we're seeing is the other side of that. And we're seeing the responsibility towards a globalized world and actually the global, you know, of looking after parts of other other parts of the world that you will suck dry for profit and these kind of things and actually that's the part that they haven't sort of fully fully engaged with you know we have companies you know pharmaceutical companies are going to be richer than an awful lot of countries you know and so actually what is their responsibility you know they're not accountable to who are they accountable to they're accountable to their shareholders mm -hmm. you know so this is this is again you know it it almost feels like we need a, a stopgap a point to kind of say Okay, look, this is where capitalism's brought us. Is this a good place? You know, is it? Is it a kind of? I think again, that's an education as well. Um, you know, for um, that, that actually should be in schools. You know, as a case of look, this is the this is the system we operate under. Um, is it good? You know, is it is it good? Do you want to change it when you get older? It's those kind of things that are not really taught. At a at a at a young age, where people can kind of understand the world and the way things are. Yeah, and I, I think that the danger is that, uh, you know, sort of the cynic in me says that we'll just come out of this and we'll all be able to go to the pub and we'll be able to go to festivals mm. and we'll forget about it and we can go on, you know, yeah. we'll meet people and it'll be all fine and dandy and then we'll just face this, um, these same issues again. Or we won't learn the lessons from this and apply mm. them to other crises that we're facing, you know, climate change. Um, Absolutely, the, yeah. The big one, you know, I look at people like Jeff Bezos or Bill Gates and uh their response to to the coronavirus crisis the immense power that these individuals have both financially and the influence that they have i watched a video of jeff bezos who was given a speech on on climate change and amazon have just announced this partnership um so have microsoft actually announced this partnership with exxon mobile and uh bp to kind of tackle the climate crisis together and they were saying you know um we we have all we are all killing the planet it's like we aren't all killing the planet like you lot are you know contributing the majority to killing the planet don't put that responsibility on me you know and we're not yeah. going to learn these lessons um and particularly what our what we can do as individuals to kind of mm. mobilize and and start these discussions and, and put pressure on the on these these companies or, or governments or whatever to to, to yeah. learn the lessons yeah. and to make the changes that, that need to be made in the future well, that's it. I mean, it, it will all start from the ground up. I mean, it's a bit like it's a bit like, um, you know, earlier on when we were kind of, you know, we were blaming Murdoch for newspaper headlines and these kind of things. The issue is, it's, and it's the same with with politicians. The issue is, is that we buy the newspapers, we vote. 
you know, and that's the thing that's, that's at the bottom line. You know, I tend to stay away now from blaming tabloids, blaming, uh, blaming politicians, because actually it's down to us, mm. you know, it's down to us. We vote those people in now. We might not be given, uh, uh, we're not be given much of a choice, but there is choice there. You know, and actually, um, that's what we need to start to realize is that actually we need to, well, again, what I keep coming back is, is kind of educate, you know, is, is, is educate to offer people choice is, and to realize that, yeah, it does, it does lie with us. It does. You know, we, we kind of have to, um, we kind of have to increase our thinking, um, widen our thinking. Yeah, uh, I couldn't agree more. And I think that's a good place to, to leave it on. I can't believe it's been an hour. It's absolutely flown by. I think. <laughs> flown by, yeah. yeah. Um, thank you so much for, for joining me. So You're welcome. Really, always really a pleasure. Appreciate it. Is there anything that you've got to, to plug or anything that you'd like to plug? Um, yeah, we always give guests the, the opportunity to. Um, in terms of in terms of plug-in, one of the things that, uh, I mean, this might not appeal to everyone, but um, uh, one of the things that uh, I've just got involved with recently is um, a thing for the music industry. Uh, we're called the um, Music Industry and Therapy Therapists and Coaches. Um, so it's for people involved with the music industry because mental health in the music industry has a particular kind of set of its own pressures and um and issues and so that's something so so you know if there's anybody out there you know um interested in that um look up mitc um to see the work that we're doing um and that's about it perfect thank you so much again i really appreciate your your time and uh um, you're welcome wish you all the best if you enjoy the video or if you enjoy the podcast please like and subscribe and follow us in the various different channels and we'll see you all next week like and subscribe brett Shit. every time <laughs> Every time I forget. <laughs> and check out our other one. videos as well while you're at it. We'll see you next week.